Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome. And if you're a guest today, uh, we are so delighted that you're here. Part of our family goal, uh, whether there are a few or many in on a gathering like today, is to realize that, how can I put this best? God has an appointment with us. You know, it's an amazing thing if you stop and think about it. The Lord keeps his appointments. He's never been late for an appointment. Now, sometimes we perceive, I wish he would come sooner, and, but his appointments are always kept right on time. And it may sound a bit trite, but I, I think it needs to be said again today that the call to worship the Lord with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength is an appointment with God. And I love to think of it this way partly because, as we've often said about children's classes, it's true of our gatherings in worship, that when we realize that far beyond what eyes can see and our natural senses can perceive, that the Lord Jesus Christ is moving and building the body of Christ today. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's notable that Jesus did not say, he did not say, you will build my church. <laughs> Neither did he say, I will build your church. Jesus said, what? I will build my church, my ecclesia. So to me, one of the greatest aspirations of life is to simply lift a hand a volunteer and say, Lord, count me in that. I want to be a part of that. How are you doing it? How do you want to do it? How do you want to do it now? And, and um, so in that light, um, we have so many wonderful examples throughout Scripture of, um, of how the saints are being equipped for the most vital task. And today we're going to begin with a rehearsing of a memory verse, kind of a theme verse or you could make it a memory verse very easily if you'd like to. Uh, that's a bit of a, it's a capsule that goes along with the five aspects of our going for the gold vision. And, uh, and it's just a good time again to, to say it again. So I'm going to ask you to uh, join me and uh, let us together remember that this is a great verse partly because it's simple, but partly too because it spans the the, the wide horizon of life. It can be applied in so many areas of our lives. So would you just say it aloud with me together today? Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That was a whatsoever I missed in there. Let's do it one more time. Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Can we say together and embrace together that vision that um, in life, in ministry, in business, in finance, in relationships, in problem solving, uh, and just the tangle of daily life, that, that can be not only a, an injunction, an instruction of how to see it life, but it can also be a great encouragement to you. Because when you're into something that maybe you don't feel that comfortable about or maybe it's created a problem for you, I can sure testify to how sometimes things that, you, that seem simple on the surface end up being more complicated than you ever dreamed. In those moments, we can always remember in this tough situation, in this tangle I may be in, 
If I can stop just briefly even to say, Lord, I want to do this to the glory of God. Give me grace to do this thing to the glory of God. It's a, it, it puts, a, it puts a, a bright horizon of hope on a difficult day. Well, I want to ask you now to open your Bible to the first chapter of 1 Peter. And this is the second of three weeks that we're going to send just in this chapter and zero in really today. I'd love for you to, be a, to have your Bible open, um, as I always say that. But uh, I think today especially, I want to put a real focus here on a power-packed paragraph from verses 5 through 13. And the best way I can summarize this um, really, truly a, 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 an intense example of how to do all to the glory of God is to say that, that this is a decisive call to action based on the testing of God. God's power to use circumstances in life to test us, but not, not in just some idle way or random way. It's a testing to equip us for what verse 13 describes, the conclusion of this section, as Decisive action. Prepare your minds for action. And, and if you go to that 5th um, through 7th verses, you can see that this is, a, this is also a key for dealing with the stresses of life that come into our environment and cause us many times, easily, humanly speaking, we're all inclined to make hasty decisions that are not in our best interest or not certainly not in response to the will of God. And here's the thing I'd like to say about stress as we think about this. This passage, especially verse 7, is kind of the key to this entire section. We're going to really kind of uh, uh, delve into that some here uh, after we look at 5 and 6. But I want you to think about it like this, that verses 5 through 7 shows us a way in which the intense stresses of life can actually be a fulcrum that God uses to catapult you into more blessing. And when you're in the midst of stress, when stress is squeezing you, when you feel like that guy who said, I feel like Florida orange juice, I get squeezed fresh every morning, you get that feeling in the middle of a day, then you know that you need something outside of yourself. You need something more than your mental capacities. And if we take the actual text, and this is what we're going to work with here today, if we really take the text of verse 7, the purpose of testing, that the testing of your faith be more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, may be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I think we have an actual formula here, a God-given design, if you will, that will show you how to, be, how to go from being stressed to blessed in the midst of your test. And the key here is that we want to look at three aspects of verse 7 that revolve around this whole principle of the productive power of being tested by God. Now, to, to do so, I think, uh, adequately, we should first think about this, realizing that... Uh, that it is an act of faith, and, and think about it in this way, that um, two phrases, I think, that go together 
in this testing process is this little phrase from Ephesians 2, 9, by grace through faith, and then verse 5 of this chapter, if you have your Bible open, and please notice that in your Bible, that fifth verse, that being kept by the power of God through faith. Now, we link this together and think of it like this. If you could even say with me these four words from Ephesians, by grace through faith. Would you say that aloud? By grace through faith. Now, last week, we saw that, that in this first chapter of 1 Peter, that the new birth, being born again, coming to Christ, giving your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, asking him to come into your life, accepting what God has for you, following through with disciples' water baptism, asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, all of those dynamics that are part of discovering this journey in Christ, that all of this comes by God's grace through faith. When we find ourselves in intense stress, though, we naturally, it's a human factor, we doubt our faith. We start to wonder about what we feel like is a fragile faith. And, and what, what we find in verses 5 to 7 is God has designed a way. It's not just a passing thought like, oh, you're going to get through your trial. I mean, you know, you know. One day in the sweet by and by, you know, all these trials will be passed. I mean, those things are true in a sense. But there's something far more profound and life-changing in these verses. And, and it starts with that phrase, kept by the power of God. Would you just shout that out with me? Let's make some noise today. Kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. Now, the, the, now the heart of that passage then here, and let's just read it aloud together. And what we're doing now, we're going to trace this into this text in a way that I hope we can step back out in a few minutes and realize God has actually given us a diamond here, an, a diamond-like priceless opportunity, yes, in the coming week in your life, in the midst of something that feels rotten, feels stressful, feels just unacceptable to you, that you can realize there is a grace through faith dynamic working that the Holy Spirit can lead you from being stressed to being blessed even while you're still in the test. It's one thing to look back on a test and say, oh, praise God, he brought me through, hallelujah. But it's different in the midst of it when it feels intensely wrong. So we saw that being born again last week through the resurrection of Jesus leads us into an inheritance. And we're today, what we're really doing is we're drawing from that inheritance. Let's read the, the, the text here of that, uh, the end of that fourth verse, the beginning of the fifth here from the screen. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Now, it's very notable. The reason I underlined the word kept there is that the Greek word, there is something very notable for us to bring into those stressful moments. Uh, the, the form of the verb is, is in, a, uh, in a continuous present tense. In the Greek, there's two kinds of present tense and two kinds of past tense as well. There's a, there is a, uh, an imperfect past tense in which things are continuing into the present, but there is a point-in-time past tense called the aorist. In the present tense, there is a when the actual present is used, it usually means an ongoing process, and in the form of this uh, participle, 
there is a currency to it that implies that not only is it real in heaven, but there's a currency into your soul that you're being guarded by God. The word kept literally translates a word, a military term in the Greek that is often translated garrison, like a platoon of soldiers equipped to guard something of great value. It's notable and also quite poignant that it's the exact same word used in a beloved memory verse that everybody here knows in Philippians 4, 7, where God's word says, the peace of God will garrison your hearts and minds. The peace of God will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The same word, garrison or guard or keep or protect. And, and that continuous process of protection is, is given to all of us, not just to say, well, my, my eternal salvation is secure in heaven. Well, sure, that's right. Praise God. I mean, we could rejoice for a thousand years about that. But, but the present tense aspect is what's emphasized in the Greek text. There is a continuous action of you through faith knowing that you're being shielded by God's power. In order to grasp and value that as a resource for our faith, it's notable that Peter has reached into the great archive of the Israeli experience, as we, we noted last week in terms of, of, of Moses. Here, we see an allusion back to Abraham in the text, where he is talking about Abraham's promise. Now, remember this, that to be shielded by God is one thing, but to know that God is your shield is something else. And, the, and what God said to Abram in Genesis 15 was, Here's a guy, hasn't even changed his name to Abraham yet. This is when he was 86 years old. He's still got 14 years before he becomes the father of Isaac. And God is preparing Abram in Genesis 15 for his mission and and for the giving of the covenant. And for Abram to grasp this, here's, here's God showing you something that's already, like we could say, guarded for you. This is an inheritance that God had intended, and God's got a guard around it, but Abraham is living life fairly oblivious to all of this. And God comes in in Genesis 15 and he says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. So not only does God reward the redeemed, he is your reward. Not only does God shield or guard you, he is your shield. And 1 Peter 1.6 then applies this to the assurance that we can have in our lives that we are in the blessing of the covenant. Through faith you're shielded by God's power. Every time Peter draws that expression through faith, he's referring to that new birth dynamic that we saw. In fact, just notice further down in the text, if you look at verse 24 and 25, go to the very end of this chapter, notice that the entire chapter kind of wraps around the, 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 the wrapping bow Uh, the beautiful bow that's wrapped around this, is the eternal veracity of the Word of God and that the most important way we we discover that is through the new birth experience. 1 Peter 1, 24 to 25, he says, All flesh flesh is like grass and all all its glory 
is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. And this is the word which was proclaimed to you. Notice that uh, Eugene Peterson in that paraphrase called the message renders that last phrase, this is the word that birthed new life in you. And that conveys what verse 23 is speaking about, that incorruptible seed, the living word of God. In verse 5 and 6 then, being shielded by the power of God means that as a born again redeemed son or daughter of God, what God promised Abram in Genesis 15 is a faint foreshadowing of the privileges you have, and yes, when you're in that difficult, stress-squeezed moment of your life, maybe in the midst of things that just feel like, wow, how did I get into this? What am I going to do about this? Why are people so unreasonable? No, none of you have ever asked those questions. Why are, why are people so difficult? Why is this situation so complex? No, when you're in the midst of it, you can say, God, I don't, I don't want to wait. You know, it's great to go back and give thanks when we're past a trial. That's, I'm not diminishing that. How much greater is it, friends, to in the midst of the trial, to be giving praise to God and boldly believing that, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, there's something really good that's going to come out of this. Now, now you know, so this is why we saw last week, and I think it's important to, to connect this. The reason you can know this is because how, of how we're identified. So we really zeroed in last week on that truth of the sojourner. And again, here's the uh, expanded translation from the Greek of that second verse that shows us why you can count on this. He said, I've written to those who have settled down alongside a pagan population. Now, when you go back to verse 1 and 2 and you think about the word sojourners, aliens, exiles, Peter is using terminology that is intentionally designed to draw from the geographic fact that he's writing to scattered believers in many parts of what is now modern-day Turkey, but he uses it to make a spiritual application to say just as you're geographically scattered, uh, God is intentionally scattered you as seed who are men and women redeemed by the power of God to live alongside the pagan population. It's a fascinating truth. The sojourner, just like Abram, just like Abram and Sarah. It's exactly what Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 says of Abraham and Sarah. They were chosen. They, they didn't see the country of their dreams. They didn't see, though God had promised it. And yet they beheld it afar off, and they continued to say, we're on our way to Zion, so to speak. They continued, in other words, because it says in Hebrews 13, verse 16 and 17, that they endured seeing the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Friends, listen, if they could, we've got to do the same. We live in a, in a time, we have the challenges in our church, in our life, in all of our circumstances that things don't look like we wanted them to look. Amen? They just don't. And we look at it and we say, this is not what I invested in. This is not what I was expecting. And, and so if we go the carnal route, we, get, we either get bitter with uh, other people or we get bitter with God or we, or we find excuses or whatever we may, what may be our typical personality cop-out. But what I love about this power-packed paragraph from 1 Peter 1, 5 through 13 is that it gives us a way to change the dynamic 
so that in the midst of your disappointment, not just beyond it, but in the midst of your disappointment, you become a productive, powerfully empowered individual who can do what that second verse says. You live alongside a pagan population. You're sown as seed throughout these five regions that he writes to. And he says you're chosen to be recipients. Note the wording now. You and I are chosen to receive the sanctifying work, most English translations say. Sanctifying means being set apart. So we're chosen by God. We're in... We're right alongside the pagan population. He doesn't take us out of the world. He plants you right there. Some guy says, I'm the only Christian on my job. You say, praise God, God turned that whole operation over to you. That's exciting. You are alongside a pagan population. You're there for a reason. And you're chosen by God to, for the setting apart work of the Spirit. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? And, this is the Kenneth Woos translation. The setting apart work of the Holy Spirit resulting in obedience. Now, so obviously we know in order if that's going to happen, and we know if any of this is going to happen, that obviously all of us know that we need resources that are beyond just our human personality. And that, that really is an important wedge into verse 7. But I want to link up with it this very familiar verse from Ephesians 6 because if you think of it this way, if we put this together, we realize in order to be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, in order to be not just grateful after a trial is over, that's good, but to be in the trial and be manifesting praise and expectancy and joy toward your Redeemer, toward the Savior who shed his blood on the cross for you and was raised from the dead and poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a hard test. Even when you've gotten battered emotionally, you step back and say, praise God, I'm being kept by the power of God. There's a shield of his favor around me. And then, then you can say, not only is, is he here, but that Ephesians 6 passage turns the characteristics of God, the attributes of God, into, into imperatives for the believer. Not only is he my shield, but I now must take up the shield. Do you see that? So there's always this wonderful dynamic in faith. One of the concerns that I have about sometimes when, when people go heavily toward um, certain, certain kinds of teachings that imply that all we need to do is just wait for God to do something, there, there, we can breed a passivity into people where we miss the fact that in the New Testament, in the covenant, in this inheritance, God has given us immeasurable treasures that we're to draw from. Note the imperatives in that Ephesians 6, verse 12 to 17 passage. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. It doesn't say, just kind of hang around for a while and listen to your favorite song and God's going to armor you up. God's going to suit you up. No, no, when you know, you got kids learning learning lacrosse or football or or baseball or whatever, you know, they one of the key things to get ready for practice or the game is get suited up right. Uh, when I'm getting ready for one of my longer bike rides, it takes me about 35 minutes to get suited up, check my tires, check my chain, get everything ready, put layers on if it's cold. So I mean my suiting up is a part of the ride. And God's telling us in Ephesians, suit up. Get ready, put on that armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. 
This is why in this is why back in 1 Peter 1:6 that we get this very intriguing invitation in the uh, sixth verse to the the reason we need verse seven. The reason we need to know how this purifying fire in the trial works is because verse six tells us we're in a long journey in which we're going to encounter many trials. Can I hear an amen? He says, you're going to need to be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation until. Would you shout out the until with me? Until. Until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, that's a big until. That's a big until. Until. How long am I going to need to have the equipment in the midst of stress to be able to rejoice in the Lord and to be able to actually, not just in some giddy or silly way, but to seriously, seriously, in the midst of a very difficult time, to be able to step back and say, you know, I'm going to make a quality choice today. I can get bitter at this person. I could get irritated at someone here. I could take something out on my spouse or my, someone in my home. I could become depressed. I can go a downward spiral of emotional despair. And many people may think, oh, that's just the way I am. No, there are choices we're making. May I put it this way? You and I, every day of our lives, remember we're spirit, soul, and body, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.23, I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord. Amen. Well, that means that in both spirit, soul, and body, we have choices to make. God designed us as choice makers. What was it one of our presidents said, I'm the decider? God, God made you the decider in far more ways than we often realize. He makes us the decider when disappointment hits us, when betrayal comes, when people fail us, when expectations fade. There's a decision to make. And until the coming of the salvation, some of us might be saying like that psalmist did, how long, O oh Lord, how long? It should be encouraging to note that psalm prayer is echoed in the book of Revelation where the saints under the altar who are facing the, the uh, crisis in the earth of the martyrdom of, 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 of believers under an evil system that is, that is hostile to God, they cry under the altar in eternity, how long, O Lord, until you complete this great plan? And so... I say that because we shouldn't feel bad if we're kind of in the league of those at times who say, how long, O Lord? But in order to, to really understand the value of it, it's amazing that in all this, and again, I'm accenting this because it's so vital to verse 7 when we get there, could you say in all this, in all this? Now, where do you greatly rejoice? <laughs> Where do we greatly rejoice? Now, Brother Josiah led us this morning, and we rejoice a little bit. It's good. It's pr preparation for the week ahead. Amen? How many of you, was, as the team here every Sunday, is leading us? You, you know it's preparation for the seven days ahead. Amen? Now, but you see, in 1 Peter 1.6, he says, It's in these things that you greatly rejoice. Rejoice is one of the strongest imperative verbs in the New Testament for putting into action what can only be true if Christ has been raised from the dead. That is, rejoicing is connected to the resurrection of Jesus just as surely on some mundane Monday in February in your life 
as it was on that first Easter morning when the women came running to the tomb and were yearning to see their Savior. God is giving us here an amazing formula. In these things you rejoice. In these fiery trials, though now for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Even for a little while, he says. You know that uh, that matches what we read in in James chapter 1 about the fact that this life is just a vapor. Remember that? James uses that term. This life is like a vapor, and it's gone. So for us, what feels like a long trial, an extended thing, in the, in the bigger scheme of things, it's a brief trial. Doesn't mean that it's not hard, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but it's a fact that in the bigger picture of God's design for our lives, we can say, well, I'm in this tough time, I don't like it, I wish I could change it, it's beyond my human control. So God, in all this, inside, in this time of disappointment and trial, Lord God, I, I'm choosing the way of rejoicing. And then that brings us to this crucial key passage. Read it aloud with me here together from the screen. So that the testing of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Oh my, there's so much here to, to, to feed into an action-oriented, praising believer who knows when he or she is in very tough times that because of Christ, our risen King, we can have a decision inside that my soul will thrive. Emotional downward spirals are largely decision-driven. I know that's not popular to say. I know some people might kind of find that offensive. Oh, no, 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 this all happened to me. But actually, the truth is, we make choices in the downward spiral, the downward emotional spiral. Now, left to ourselves, we need counsel and care and we need compassion. But the, the compassion oftentimes can be misguided if the compassion is aimed at disabling the redeemed believer. The redeemed believer is a child of God who he or she for all of our emotional challenges, that he or she knows that Christ Jesus has a defining purpose that is getting brighter and better. Now, the testing of your faith in that passage translates a word that we want to look at. I want to look at actually three things of this verse that I think help to kind of pin it together in a way that you can take it home with you. One is that what I think of here, first of all, as an accurate view of testing. The first thing we got to think about here in verse 7, and we'll kind of toggle with this a little bit, is that testing in that verse is not the same as temptation. So that's two different things. So the distinction between testing and temptation is that in temptation, there is an appeal to the flesh, an enticement to wrong desires. James 1, 13 to 16 outlines this, that the desire, the human desire, which may be good or bad in certain circumstances, but it is enticed to evil. Now, the, James says 
every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires and then enticed. And then sin is conceived in the heart before it becomes an action. So that, that cycle is there. And the Bible shows us that cycle is real. And Satan, the adversary of our soul, is called the tempter. So, that, so he's described as one of the titles of Satan is the tempter. Um, and yet, James 1, 13 to 16 also indicates that there's a human factor as well. There's an interplay between the human factor, desires of the flesh, as Galatians 5 says, and the enticements or the devices of the devil. That's why Ephesians 4, 27 says, do not give any opening to the devil. Don't give the devil an open door. But it doesn't mean, certainly doesn't mean what Flip Wilson said 45 or 50 years ago, the devil made me do it. No, that's a, that's a distortion. There is a human factor in all temptations, and again, it's decision-driven. How many of you believe many temptations are decision-driven? They're there's an active involvement of the soul. So, now, testing is different. Now, temptation really is always, you could say, temptation is always aimed at tearing you down. It's always aimed at pulling you away from God's best. Testing is God's way of providing for us to be improved. Actually, testing is always a positive purpose. And, and when you think of it this way, I think it's very helpful to understand that an accurate view of testing shows us that no matter where that test originates, God has a positive purpose in it. The actual word for testing that, uh, that is used in this text is a word that means uh, to test in order to approve. So in your Bible, 1 Peter 1, 7, notice that when it says the testing or the trial of your faith, it translates the word dakimazo, and dakimazo is a positive-oriented word usually used in ancient Greek for in two categories primarily. One was for medical doctors for, in the medical profession of that day uh, for the proving or the, the battery of tests that a person would take if they've gone through medical training and they're now to be approved as a care provider in the medical field. Then there was the testing of weaponry in the military where a, a weapon needed to be put to the test. Anyone who uses any kind of weapon knows you want to put that to the test. You want to use it to be sure that it's working correctly. And there's also an implication of improvement in this, that, uh, that in the process of testing, there is a kind of an improvement. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 3. We read that three weeks ago. The fire shall test each one's work. Paul, Paul uses the same word in talking about the believers at the church at Corinth, about testing the sincerity of your love. He, he wrote to second, the 2 second Corinthian letter to say, there's a test here, friends, that you can decisively pass. And what a joy it is when you know God sent something that's testing you, but it's testing in order to approve you. And when we recognize it this way, then we can all accept that general injunction of 1 Thessalonians 5.31 that says, what? Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. So in other words, we might say, in a sense, that what 
what 1 Peter 1.7 is saying about the test is that it is a precision testing. This is an exciting thing to get a hold of. Um, not having a mechanical background myself, I was always intrigued by it because it's just not my, I'm not, <laughs> I, I don't have a good aptitude in that area. And I can remember as a little kid, one of my uncles was a machinist in uh, Escondido, California. And when I can remember as a little kid, they said, you know, Uncle Murray's a machinist. And I tried to understand, what's a machinist? And so as they explained it to me, and it, later in, in, an, in one of my jobs where I was in, you know, involved in a factory and, you know, working around the, you know, uh, machines that make plastic bottles, I, I, was, I was struck by the fact that in every arena of life, um, good machine, precision design and precision work in machining is crucial to everything we take for granted in life. When you go start your vehicle, you know, somebody, some engineer machined that, uh, all the tools and the, and the, uh, the components that, that, that make an automobile operate correctly. So God, of all the things that we could get from 1 Peter 1.7, we should go away today rejoicing that our Heavenly Father has precision testing aimed at your improving. That precision testing is part of God's, God's gift. Now, the second thing that we've got to distinguish in verse 7 is, to me, probably the most liberating, and that is that when we read 1 Peter 1.7 kind of casually, it's easy to kind of think of it like this. Well, I'm going through a tough time, and God's just testing me. I don't know what God's trying to do to me, or I don't know what's happening to me, but I'm being tested. And, or, even some of our songs we sing, you know, I'm in the refiner's fire, you know, and I'm being refined, and all of that. Now, when you look at it that way, um, there's a kind of an endless scope of an unfinished job. How are you ever going to know when you have actually been purified? When you dig into the text, you realize the actual objective of the test is not you as a personality, but it is your faith. Now, that may seem like a fine distinction, but it's an important distinction. Why? Because what's being tested in the fire is not you. It's not like God is putting you at... Have you ever gone through a hard time? And you, I told Becky one time, I feel, like, I feel like I'm on a barbecue spit and I'm just being turned around and around, you know? And, and we all have those feelings at times. God is not, the focus of 1 Peter 1.7 is not God testing you. It's him testing your faith. And that, he promises, is more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's refined by fire. And that is a project that you can rejoice in. And another way to look at that is to realize that embedded in 1 Peter 1.7 is the fact that God has accepted and designed the many diverse personalities in the church. If we put too much focus on personality, we begin comparing ourselves with one another favorably or unfavorably. And the Bible shows us in many places that when we fall into that trap of comparisons, we lose our energy, we lose our momentum. But no, if it's about your faith, one thing you can be sure of <laughs> is that your faith, like gold, can be refined and purified and the dross can be drawn off and you, my friend, can be rejoicing and trusting God every step of the way because you know you are accepted. Your personality is okay. It's not you that the test is aimed at. It's your faith. And when you get that in your heart, 
then that active anticipation of what God has in store becomes even more exciting, even more uh, vivid, that you could say it like this, that what 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7 is really telling us is that we're designed by God for approving his work in human vessels. All the vessels are different. All the personalities of the people of God this congregation, I can say it, you know, with gratitude and joy across the years, how many delightful experiences we have with the different personalities and gifts and talents and, and emphases that God brings in the body of Christ. But the beauty of it all is that when you're in Christ, in the born-again life, experiencing the new life that Jesus gives in the resurrection, you can be sure that you're designed by God for his, his work to be seen in your human vessel. It's like, I think of it this way, that 1 Peter 1, 4-7 is saying, His grace is poured into living test tubes to show the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. That is, God is giving you an opportunity to be a part of this uh, adventure and, and to realize that as you do so, that you have a bright future. So when you think of it this way, I think it's very helpful then to bring into 1 Peter 1.7, he speaks of this uh, testing of your faith will be more purified, it's like gold that perishes, and it's going to continue to get brighter and better until when? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're going to have an inexpressible joy. Now, I want to close on this passage from 1 Corinthians 2. It kind of wraps it up for us, but I think of it like this. If Peter talks about, literally, he says a joy that can come out of trial that is so great, you can't even put it into words. It's similar to this passage, Paul quoting from Isaiah when he says, I has not seen, maybe say it aloud with me, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And the conclusion for me in, verse, in this whole testing, the refining fire, no, it's not like I'm being burned to a crisp. <laughs> no, it's your, it's your faith. You're not in the fire. Your faith is in the fire. And, and if you're in that time, you can say, well, it, it's, you can say that, if you want to, Pastor, but it sure feels like I'm in the fire. <laughs> well, but really, if you see that your faith is in the fire, then you can see this new dimension of praise. That praising God is not just a celebration of, of his goodness and his glory and his great works. It's also an anticipation. And 1 Peter 1.7 is saying, in every phase of the refining of your faith, as that gold, as that, as that gold is intensified the heat of a goldsmith as he heated up the flames of that cauldron, and that liquefied gold, the dross would rise to the top. And even in the days that Peter was writing in the first century, it was customary that uh, the goldsmith worker would have a ladle, and as he turned up the flame in that cauldron, it got the, the intense heat, hundreds of degrees of heat, the molten gold, the dross rises to the top. The gold worker takes this ladle and he 
lightly scrapes the dross off of the top and the intense liquefied gold gets a little bit shinier, a little bit brighter. There's, there's an old um, tradition about those ancient gold workers that um, one of their primary goals in knowing when the gold had reached a refined point of acceptability was when the goldsmith could see his face reflected in the glimmering gold. That being the case, what better could there be to say about the testing of our faith than that ultimately leading to a joy that's beyond what words can express. The real joy would be knowing that the Lord Jesus, the giver of our faith, the author and finisher of our faith, that he looks into the shining molten gold and we see the reflected face of Jesus in the lives of the redeemed. I want to give thanks to God for that today and, and believe God with you that this, these things we can't see with the eye, can't hear with the ear, he said he's prepared them for those who love them. He's guarding you in the gift of salvation. Father, I ask today that as we go into this beautiful Sunday afternoon, thank you for respite in the weather. In the weather, thank you for the many ways that you have brought to our lives a, an understanding of trial and testing. Help us to distinguish, Lord, between testing and tempting. Let us help us recognize the enemy's approach and our own flesh's yearning in the direction of temptation, that it's, it's always a downward spiral. It's always a destructive tendency. But let us also know the value of the tests that come into our lives. And not rather than just seeking to endure, but in the midst of the test, to go from being stressed to being blessed in the midst of our test. In Jesus' name, amen.